Well, good morning. It's good to be together with you on in the days of summer. Many traveling, and I hope you have travel plans coming up. Or look forward to spending time with family. It's a gift the Lord has given us richly to enjoy. And so, for the rest of us, let's. Uh, if you're here as a child through at four years old through sixth grade, you can be dismissed downstairs. If you'd like your child to be in an age-appropriate service, they can go at this time. Thank you, teachers, for serving down there and being a blessing to us, being faithful there. For the rest of you, if you'd like, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our study through the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, we've titled God's Plan for a Healthy Church. Today we're going to bring a new section to mind here and we'll spend our time uh, studying through that. But to preserve our time today, let's look there. This is our second topic found within chapter 6. It really extends all the way through the end of chapter 7. So this time that Paul takes to discuss these things are things that he has spent a good deal of time uh, thinking about and as the Lord has guided him along by his Holy Spirit presenting to the church. We've seen already the Lord wants his church to be healthy. The Apostle Paul uh, was carried along by the Holy Spirit to address some errors in the church at Corinth. And through Paul's direction, churches from every century, every background have had the benefit of this instruction, as we've said, from a preventative standpoint or from a curative standpoint. And so, however the case may be, from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to chapter 16, verse 9, Paul addresses problems inhibiting the good health of the church. Some of them uh, were really bad. For example, in our first section, we studied from chapter 1, 10 to chapter 4, verse 2. Unity was his topic. And so he dealt with errors regarding division. As we moved on to chapter 5, verse 1, to the end of, chap of the chapter, his topic was purity. So he had to deal with errors regarding immorality inside the membership. From chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 11, Paul had to deal with the testimony of the church. So he had to deal with errors regarding conflict resolution, taking other believers to court in front of non-believers. And we just closed that time out uh, last time. From chapter 6, verse 12, where we are today, to the end of chapter 7, Paul uh, deals with marriage and errors in the church regarding marriage and divorce and singleness, and so he's going to take a long time to deal with that. From chapter 8 all the way to chapter 11, verse 1, he's going to deal with freedom in Christ, and so he has to deal with errors regarding Christian liberty. Chapter 12, verse, uh, chapter 12 really through chapter 14, he's dealing with ministry in the church, so he has to deal with errors regarding spiritual gifts, and so Paul takes some time to deal with those. Chapter 15. He wants the church to see the reality of faith, so he has to deal with errors regarding spiritual gifts and, and uh, regarding the resurrection and those things. And then chapter 16, he desires the church to be generous, and so uh, with material things, he has to deal with errors regarding money and things that are owned. And so that kind of outlines the book. That's kind of how Paul has uh, structured his thoughts as the Holy Spirit's carried him along. That's really how we'll structure ours. And so as you see the titles then behind me as we work our way through these things, we're just picking up on Paul's cues as we desire really to kind of align ourselves as a church, uh, whether it's from a curative or a preventative standpoint, in these things where there are error in this Corinthian church. So very helpful. Now, if you look in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 is where we're going to start. Now I want to say this before we start reading this next passage, because I think this is really how Paul's mind is working here as I uh, go over and over and study this. Uh, we're going to see Paul is going to address a particular set of questions that he received from the church, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. So look there, just read like the first six words there, if you would, 
uh, and it's going to concern singleness and marriage, and those are questions he received from the church. And so in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says this. He says, now concerning the things about which, what? You wrote. And so Paul has received some interaction from the church in Corinth, and he's going to address those questions specifically. And what's neat about chapter 7, it's kind of listening to a one-sided conversation on the telephone. You, you have to kind of guess what the question was by what Paul's answer is. But before he gets there, and I really think this is Paul's kind of prelude to this very in-depth, very significant teaching on marriage and singleness and all the things that are connected to that, he is going to go through this part uh, to kind of help them understand overall purity and the dangers then of uh, immorality in the life. And so I think that's the issue that Paul is really thinking about as he begins verse 12, because they flow right together. Uh, as you look at verse 20, it says, For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And then he says, Now concerning the things which you wrote. And so you can kind of see he's kind of set the stage for an in-depth teaching on singleness and marriage. So now let's look, as we think about it that way, let's look at verse 12 of chapter 6, and let's read all the way through the end of this chapter. It starts this way. Uh, all things are lawful for me. Now I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard, and you can read along in your copy of God's Word, or you can grab one from the seat that's in front of you, around you somewhere close, and you can read in that uh, passage that we're reading in. However, I'll give you some verse cues so that you can uh, stay together with us. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Verse 16, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, verse 20, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Let's stop right there. There's a couple of illustrations that maybe uh, could be helpful to our thoughts here, and I'm going to tell you uh, over the next several weeks, our time here will be rated PG. And I say that just to give you a little bit of a warning that um, there are some important topics here and your students may need your guidance. Uh, up through sixth grade, uh, you can certainly go downstairs if you wish. Uh, seventh and up should already be familiar with the things that we're going to talk about from your own instruction at that time in their life. And so there shouldn't be any trouble there. And of course, as you know me, you know that I don't want to enhance or inflame our own conscience. And so we try to stay away just being explicit for no reason. But there will be specific things we need to talk about that are very important, and so that gives you a little bit of a heads up. And if you, wanna, if you have little ones here and you want to have them go downstairs at this point, please feel free. A couple of illustrations, though. Many years ago, some superstitious farmers in Scotland kept a corner of their fields uncultivated in order to pacify certain evil spirits. They believed that by sacrificing one corner to the spirits, uh, the remainder of the field would be left undisturbed and fertile. What really happened, though, was of course, that weeds in the uncultivated corner went to seed, 
which was in turn carried by the wind and scattered across the entire field. And so it is with believers who uh, hold the whole person's life and testimony can be infected and ruined uh, by allowing sin to dominate even a small portion of his life. Robert G. Lee, in his book Heart to Heart, said, quote, Sin has ruined men, ruined women, ruined angels. Sin has occasioned every tear of sorrow, every sigh of grief, every pang of agony. Sin has withered everything that is fair, blasted everything that is good, made bitter everything that was sweet, dried up springs of comfort, rolled far and wide tides of sorrow. Sin has digged every grave, built every coffin, woven every shroud, enlarged every cemetery that the world has ever seen, end quote. A.W. Tozer, in The Knowledge of the Holy, penned these words, Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. That is sin in its consecrated essence, end quote. And perhaps the quote from Tozer above all of those quotes applies in a very full way to our passage today in light of Paul's declaration that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit as he talks about immorality in the body. And we saw that this Corinthian church was founded in a city set in a culture of vice. Uh, They were a vile, evil people. They had too much money, too much luxury, too much indulgence. We saw last week a list of things uh, last time that we were together, and we even looked at it again last week, uh, a list of things which in their composite give us a definition of what it means to Corinthianize, which became the word that described the culture manifested by these people in this city. We read, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. I think if you kind of sum that all together, you could certainly put that together and define the the verb to Corinthianize. The believers came out of this culture with a lot of baggage. Uh, They were new in Christ. They brought a lot with them, and the larger Roman culture around them kept the heat on them. And it was all going on, all of this, filling up the Corinthian as well as the whole Roman culture. During our introduction to the letter, some months ago, we compared our culture with that of the Corinthian culture and the greater Roman culture around them. And we saw how this culture that Paul is dealing with was worse than ours, at least at this point. And I gave you a lot of reasons why that was the case. I won't go through them again, other than just this one. Uh, It had a lot to do with temple worship. Babylonian cultic mystery religions, really, that filtered all the way down to the time of the Apostle Paul were the mythological religions that advocated prostitution. And they taught that if you had a relationship with a priestess or a prostitute, you were continuing with the deity and communing with the deity that she represented. And so the religions taught then that the way to get in touch with the deity is by liaison with the priestess. The Temple of Corinth for example, had 1,000 temple prostitutes to get people in contact with the deity. By the way, that's a very popular and convenient form of religion, and it was then, and and you can see that it was not only not illegal, but encouraged and condoned. And so, Paul comes, and the Lord leads him to plant a church here. They were rescuing people out of this pornographic culture. Obviously, these people had lived a pagan lifestyle. They had a former religion in which they engaged in these things. They had all of these things. And Paul is very concerned about them for two reasons. Number one, you can find this in the first stop in your notes, he knows that old habits act as a very strong temptation. 
to the new life. And so he knows that you know, these habits have, have been and continue to be a strong temptation to them. Number two, second thing Paul's concerned about as he writes this section of the letter, as he kind of is a prelude, as I said, to singleness and marriage and all the things he's going to talk about in chapter 7. Number two, the culture salting the church, and which is really hindering the health of the church, which is why Paul's bringing this to their attention. And he wants to give them this whole package and answer all their questions, but he wants to deal with the issue of sexual sin and the physical body first, because it's going to apply to all the other situations he's going to talk about as he starts in chapter 7, in verse 1. So, now with any, as with any sin inside the church, whether it's gossip or slander or lying or immorality or whatever it may be, there's always a justification in there somewhere for why it's going on. And we've talked about a number of those things in division and all the things of factions that we talked about before and immorality inside the church and all of that. There's always reasons, there's always justification whether the church was looking at this uh, couple living in open sin and saying we're just so open-minded, we're just so forgiving, we're just so, you know, uh, tolerant, or whether it was the factions, well, you know, I know this, I bring this in from the outside, I know this is a better way to do it, and we're just justifying, sowing some discord, whatever it is. There's always reasons to justify what you're doing and why you're doing it, and it's the same with believers in Corinth. And so Paul's going to give them the principles of purity that are going to give them the tools to fight off this prevalent and pervasive sin, which they were involved in before, and it's become to salt the church again. So he's going to lay this foundation and the principles before he begins to answer their questions about marriage and singleness and divorce. And he's going to point to a number of things. Even though there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Uh, even though we stand in grace, Romans 5.2. We've talked about all those things. Even though those things are true, and he's speaking to believers, there are some important principles Paul wants to get across to them that show why immorality has to be barred from the life of the believer. Three negative, five positive. I'm going to give them to you right now. You don't have to write them down because we're going to go through them one by one and you can catch them that then. But they all have to do with the body. And here's the thing, here's the way Paul's kind of broken this, uh, this section up. First thing, the believer's body is robbed by sexual sin. That's where we're going to start. The believer's body is robbed by sexual sin. Number two, the believer's body is brought under the power of sexual sin. Number three, the believer's body, the believer's perception of the body is changed by sexual sin. Those are the three negatives. And that's how Paul starts this passage in verse 12. Those are the negative ones. Now the positive ones. The believer's body was made for the Lord. The believer's body will be raised with Christ. The believer's body is going to be joined to Christ. The believer's body is the home of the Holy Spirit. And the believer's body is owned by the Lord. And so these things are super important. And as Paul talked in Romans 5, or rather Romans 6, about dealing with sin and knowing and reckoning and yielding. Those are very important principles in chapter 6, as you remember. We went through those. It's important that you know the facts that surround your life. And as Paul's gone through all these issues in the church, he's given them the facts that help them understand who they are. Like perhaps if we move back in chapter 5, remember, he told them, listen, why are you, or why are you taking, or rather at the beginning of chapter 6, why are you taking each other to court? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know you're going to judge the world and you're going to judge angels? And so he gives them the information that they need first, and then he gives them the way to begin to bar these things from their life and some very practical application, as he says, flee sexual immorality. And so these are very, very relevant for our culture today. Uh, because of the prevalence of the Internet and all the, the uh, uh, kind of disconnect between who you are and what you're doing privately from someone else, I think this is a very important message, and these series of messages are going to be very helpful for you if these are areas where you're struggling. So I'm looking forward to going through them with you. Now, look at verse 12, if you would. Let's just start with the first one. 
and we'll get the very first principle Paul wants to get across. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Now, there's a lot of application to that verse, and as I told you when we started this study in Romans or in uh, 1 Corinthians, that there would be more application than time on an individual message basis to cover. And so I encourage you to continue to pursue the other applications and use the Word of God to guide you and the Holy Spirit because you have the same tutor and book that I have. And if there's other questions you have, certainly feel free to shoot them off to me as we accumulate those. We'll, we'll have a Q&A, open Q&A session about these things. But here's the thing. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Now, we know the topic Paul's going to talk about, so here's where the application is today, and we'll just make it, okay? Number one, the believer's body is robbed by sexual sin. In other words, Paul is reiterating that all things are forgivable, but some sins really cheat you. You could say it that way. Or you could say God will forgive, but the price of some things is very high. And immorality is one of those things that God forgives. God has forgiven totally and completely by the blood of Jesus Christ in his grace. But there's a high price because there's a loss built in to that sin. And that's what Paul's trying to get across. And I think the best place to illustrate this principle, although it really needs no illustration for those who have been in this type of sin long enough to come to the bitter part of it, I think the best place to illustrate uh, the principle is found in a passage that I go through with my sons once they reach a certain age. It's part of the time that we spend together as I interact with them about all that God's done and all he's created with uh, male and female and all this. This is one of the passages we read at length that we talk about. And so I'm just going to share it with you. This is part of our own life. And I'll, uh, I'll let you, I'd like you to in on this because I think it's important. Look at Proverbs chapter 5. And I'd like you to turn there if you would because it's so significant. And you can underline some things in your Bible. And I think that may help you, particularly if you have young sons who are coming up to of age where you're going to spend some time with them, telling them all that God's done and created with intimacy and, and all of that. These are really important passages, but they really illustrate the believer's body is robbed by sexual sin. And they illustrate the next one, too. Uh, as well, which is the believer's body is brought under the power of sexual sin. And so we'll just look at these just briefly and go through them, and I think they'll be uh, uh, beneficial to you. And I'm just going to read and comment along the way. And Proverbs, as you know, is generally written to parents to deal with sons. Okay, it's just written in that tense, in that context. But it can really just as easily apply to daughters, and the descriptions equally apply. Don't think it's only sons that need the instruction and it's only daughters somebody's daughter that leads the sons astray you can easily switch the two okay you don't have any problem with that and you can make the application with your daughter and warn them about uh, men uh, as you can make uh, you warn your son about women okay so understand that it's just in the context that the bible is written but it is things parents teach children now look at verse one if you would my son Give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, verse 2, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. In other words, this is important. What you're going to hear and see is going to help you in life, so pay attention. That's what uh, the, uh, the Solomon is saying in, in reminding uh, his son, of course, and then later uh, those that follow. Verse 3, for the lips of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. So it's all very enticing. In other words, it all looks very satisfactory at this point. And then comes the reality. Look at verse 4. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. Verse 6. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. And you understand that then, as Solomon is talking, what you see is not going to be what you get. That the end of that is not going to be this nice thing you think it's going to be. 
the end is a lot different than what you thought. A very high price, a very large loss. And so he gives a little advice. Look at verse 7. Now then, my sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. In other words, you're not going to be able to see this for yourself. Your first glance is going to be just like I told you. So listen to, then carefully, he says. Uh, what you see is going to be very deceiving. She or he is sneaky and sly. And so if you want to survive, you're going to have to be proactive. So he says, verse 8, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. In other words, if you're, you're not going to have a hard time resisting immorality if you don't go where it is. And that's just basic, isn't it? I mean, if you're having trouble with your thought life, if there's a trouble in your life and you're struggling, you just make a quick application here. You're not going to have the trouble if you're not going where the trouble is. And it's just obvious, but Solomon points it out. And then he says, you know, if you stay far away and you're deliberate about it, you're going to be okay. But he says, let me tell you what will happen if you don't listen. Look at verse 9. Or you will give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. Stop right there. It can be a very high price. You can lose your honor. You can lose your respect. The years of your life you've spent building and investing in position and opportunity can be lost to cruel people. Verse 10. And strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. Either through alimony or lawsuits or the loss of a job or the loss of livelihood, everything you worked for going to someone you don't know. Or if it's a young person, some of the opportunities can be lost to others that you perhaps would have had. All things, of course, can be forgiven, but some things rob you and some things you can't get back. See, And that's the point. Verse 11, and you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. Now, that just appears to mean that when you're old and the body doesn't work the way it used to, uh, and so those things of the physical attraction no longer are the attraction, or it could mean, you know, because of disease, you're kept uh, from any more immorality, one or the other. It could easily apply to each one. We'll just look, you know, look, you're just going to look around you at the end, wherever it is, uh, you're just going to look around you and just lament your actions. And you may not have your family anymore. You may not have what you worked for. You may not have your health. And the word groan just means to yell out in frustration. So mourning and remorse. And you'll say, verse 12, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. Verse 13, I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. In other words, what an idiot I was to do what I did. That was so stupid. How foolish that I didn't listen to the instruction people gave me. That's what you'll say. Immorality charges a very high price, and the believer's body is robbed by sexual sin. Now, God's not down on intimacy. Not at all. In fact, this next section, which we won't read, you can read for yourself, verses 14 through 19, really illustrate God's design for marriage. According to the, the God who created it, it's a wonderful thing and very satisfying and, and amazing. And so that section deals with that and just kind of reaffirms God's not down on intimacy. He's not down on raining on your parade and making everything uh, so state and, and uh, un, unattractive. He's not into that at all. Now skip to verse 20 where Solomon finishes up this section. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? In other words, why in the world would you do that, knowing the high cost of that sin? 
Uh, there is nothing done in secret, he reminds his readers, verse 21, for the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all his paths. In other words, why would you do it when you know the Lord is what? Watching. Why would you do it? And that's just obvious, right? I mean, just like if you don't go there, you're not going to have problems. It's just why would you do it when you know the Lord is watching? And that's going to appeal to those who love the Lord. And I don't know how you plug into that, and you don't know how I plug into that, but the bottom line is those who love the Lord will relate to this. Why would you do it when you know that the Lord is watching? Verse 22, his own iniquities will capture the wicked. He will be held with the cords of his sin. In other words, doing it traps you. Okay, you're going to be held, uh, you're going to be captured by the wickedness that you do. He'll be held by the cords of his sin. Verse 23, he'll die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Now, that's just simple enough, isn't it? I mean, it just comes right down to it. It illustrates very well the point we're trying to make. The very first stop for us as we look at uh, Rome, uh, Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but all not all things are profitable. And I think that we could really make that case very easily that this particular type of sin, immorality, is not profitable, but creates a huge drain. Now, look at chapter 6, verse 20. Just flip forward, if you would. Chapter 6, verse 20, and once again, written to sons, but this applies to daughters, okay, to offspring. Now, please look forward, if you would, to verse 20, starting with my son. My son, observe the commandment of your father, and do not for forsake the teaching of your mother, Verse 21, bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. Verse 22, when you walk about, they'll guide you. When you sleep, they'll watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. Now, this is the reason why in our family we just decide to go through these passages. And as we go through this time in a, in a child's life when it's time to talk about these things, I don't need somebody's written book to help me guide me through this. God designed all of this, and he gave the order for it, and then it doesn't take you very long as you get into the book of Genesis to figure out how men are messing it up. And so you can just use those as illustrations of what not to do. And then you move forward to wisdom literature, and you can see a very basic instruction about how to keep your life pure, both from David and from Solomon. So here's what we have. You know, you have that wonderful imagery here, okay, which is why you want to teach this, which is why you want to make sure you get this across. Godly counsel from parents is in view here. Counsel that takes in teaching about immorality and its very high cost to the body and to the life. Verse 21, bind them continually on your heart. In other words, meditate them, meditate on them in your mind. The heart, of course, is the seat of the emotion, the seat of understanding, and it's just an illustration to say, listen, always bind these things to your mind. Think about them. Think about these principles. They're important. So not only are you discussing them the first time with your child, but they become a regular habit of conversation for you and for them. Let, tie them around your neck. In other words, don't forget them. Let them be like a precious necklace or jewelry that you always remember to put on and carry. So this is really to the child. Listen, keep this on all the time. This is super important. It's very valuable. What I'm going to tell you is something you need to take away with you and keep with you at all times. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they'll watch over you. And when you awake, they'll talk to you. In other words, the instruction that you give about immorality and, and its high cost in the life is something that's going to be very important to guide them as they walk through their life. You're not always going to be there to make sure they're making all the right decisions, but as they carry them around, as they meditate on them, then they will guide you. And when you sleep, they'll watch over you. And when you awake, they'll talk to you. Then you know, all through your life, this godly counsel provides the marker and the guardrail of protection that you need. Verse 23. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. So 
Solomon just gives some reasons why this is very important to communicate. God's word is the right fixture, in other words, okay, for the commandment is a lamp. Lit by teaching. So in other words, making application. You read the word and then you make some application to it. Added to that, correction that comes from someone watching closely enough to reprove a bad decision or a misstep. That's the way of true life, the way of blessing. Not the way of being cheated out of a life that God would have for you. So why do we need all that? Why do we need to provide it to our children? Why do we need to make sure this is clearly taught? Well, right back to the same topic, the danger that exists and it's such a high price for this danger. Look at verse 24. This is, this is Proverbs 6, verse 24. To keep you from the evil woman, and I'll put in, or man, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, or adulterer, whatever happens to be the case, someone who's not your wife, someone who's not your husband, that's the emphasis, okay? Verse 25, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. So, thought life is important in this instruction, as you can see. Not only are you to meditate on the right thing, you make sure you're not meditating on the wrong thing. And those things are within your control, beloved. See? What you're thinking about, because it looks enticing, and the imagination can entice, and we're supposed to be taking captive every thought. And so that's very important, as you uh, provide a, a structure on which you're going to have an offense, instead of just playing defense and, and reaction all the time, you're having an offense to make sure that you're, you're purging this stuff out of your life, if that's the case. So thought life is important in this instruction, what you're thinking about, because look, you know, it looks enticing, imagination can entice, but again, there's a high price attached to immorality. Look at verse 26, if you would. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Now, I want to just say this, and I've said this several times. The passage isn't talking about prostitution, okay, necessarily. Now, that would certainly fall into the same category, but both nouns here are the Hebrew word isha. So in other words, Harlot and adulteress is typically translated married woman. And so what we're talking about here, the passage is focusing on the actions of a married man or a woman with another married person or single person that they aren't married to. That's the point, okay? Whatever the situation may be, however it works out, basically is that interaction. Now, what is the cost? Well, it can be everything. It can be very, very high. And all you have, your home, your savings, your health, everything we looked at, and of course, after all this instruction... There's always someone who thinks, well, that's never going to happen to me. So Solomon makes this statement. Look at verse 27. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? And what's the answer to that? Not unless you're wearing a bestos pants. And then the skin underneath is going to get pretty hot, right? Obviously, rhetorical answer, no. Verse 28, or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? No. Verse 29, so is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife, and there you just have it translated that way. Just helps you understand where the whole, the whole situation is, is referring to. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. In other words, you think you're going to do this and everything will be okay? Think again. You're cheating yourself, you're robbing your own life, sexual immorality comes at a very high price. Now skip over to chapter 7, if you would, quickly. And this is the last part, and we'll move back to our passage. And here in chapter 7, Solomon is talking about single young men involved in immorality. And he refers to them in the previous verses as simple ones who lack wisdom and understanding. You can see that in the passages, but for time I'll get to verse 22 because that's where we pick up the instruction. And he really shows the outcome of how high a price it really is. And, so, and that's really our point. 
uh, Proverbs 7.22, suddenly he follows her. So these are the simple ones, the ones who lack wisdom, the ones who are meditating on uh, immorality, the ones who are meditating on uh, someone else, uh, someone who belongs to someone else, whatever it may be, so, someone who's being enticed by uh, an adulterer or adulteress, someone who is interested in that immoral relationship that's not inside the bounds, and, and a relationship not inside the bounds of marriage. So you can just make that application, simple ones who lack wisdom and lack understanding. And then he says this, suddenly he follows her, and as most movies uh, portray, is a man embracing what's natural and good with no consequences, right? Suddenly he follows her, and it's all going to be okay according to our movies. No consequences, do what you want, everything's fine, whatever. No. He follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or, as two people doing what comes naturally, enjoying their youth? No. No, that's what our movies would say, but that's not what Scripture says. As one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. In other words, you're, you're shackled and you're getting ready to go to punishment. So you follow her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or follow him as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. Verse 20, 23, until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. So once again, very, very high cost which is exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Sin always subtracts. It never adds. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. And I think we can make that illustration so clearly here, right? The believer's body is robbed by sexual sin. Paul is just reiterating that all things are forgivable, but some things rob you. In other words, God will forgive at the price of sight. Now look at verse 24 of Proverbs 7, okay? One more call to wisdom. Now therefore, my sons, listen to me, and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Verse 25, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways, or his ways. Do not stray into her path. Verse 26, for many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. That's just stark truth, isn't it? Many are the victims she or he have cast down. And we don't have to think very long, do we? And we can think of those who've been cast down as victims, who've lost most or all of their honor and uh, much of what they've worked for. And all of this. this is not hard for us to connect, is it? Deals with everyone, no doubt, a standard here, men and women. It's a very high price that the believer pays in their body to engage in unbiblical relationships. Now, and I think we made the point. We don't have to talk about it anymore. Look back at verse 6 of 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And that really, beloved, is the extent of the PG that I said it would be. Parental guidance suggested, okay? That takes in a lot of topics that perhaps need clarification with your younger ones. Second principle. The verse says, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Principle number two, the believer's body is brought under the power of, of sexual sin. Paul's reiterating that all things are forgivable, but some things trap you. In other words, God will forgive, but you could be captured. And these first two principles are, are very important for the Corinthian church to understand. And before Paul answers questions about marriage and divorce and singleness, he wants to get across these very important principles that dominate these nine verses and would destroy or torpedo any single or married relationship that's connected to a believer. And so these are 
overall principles, general principles that apply to everyone. And I think it's just obvious that numerous sins can be categorized here as we think about being mastered by anything. We can certainly throw in all kinds of vices that could master you, and you don't need me to spur your imagination on there. But certainly sexual sin is one of those things that can be that uh, sin that can master you. Proverbs 7.22, we saw the words, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, as a bird hastens to the snare. I mean, you can just be captive and just takes you where it's going to go. Mastered, exosiazo, exercising authority over, here it's used of the body. Exercising authority over the body can be used to mean enslaved. Uh, There's no more enslaving thing than sexual sin. Remember Proverbs 5.22, we looked at it just a moment ago. His own iniquities will capture the wicked. He'll be held with the cords of his sin. I think we can describe uh, immorality as one of those things that can certainly grab you with cords and capture you uh, with iniquity. And here the Corinthian believers in the name of liberty are really losing their freedom and becoming slaves. They become slaves to their own desires. And the previous life that they had involving themselves in the worship that they did is now salting salting the church again. And so here they are. And Paul says, listen, you've become slaves to your own desire. It's illustrated well in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And the men and I went through this passage a couple of years ago at length on our men's retreat to just talk about how these will play into a godly life and a godly husband's life and a godly single person's life. Uh, but here it says, and we're always looking for the will of God and what does God want you to do and, you, you know, places where you can read, you know, and you don't have to scratch your head and say, well, what exactly is he saying? Well, these, this is one of those places, you know, as, as we see in another place in Thessalonians, you know, you rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Well, we don't have to scratch your head and figure out what he's trying to figure out what he's saying. I mean, he's pretty, pretty clear. And so we just make that part of our life because that's the will of God. Now, here's another one, okay? For this is the will of God. What is it, Paul? Your sanctification. God, the one who does your sanctification, the one who is producing that process in you through the word, uh, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's his will. Just abstain from it. Far away from it. Keep far from it. Verse 4, that each of you, here's another part of his will, not only that you abstain from sexual immorality, verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's a parenthetical comment that kind of clarifies what you don't want. So this is the same point just from the other side, isn't it? If if you're not going to be captured by immorality, then you're going to have to know how to master your own body. And that's the whole point of the word vessel. You have to get control over your own flesh. That's why Paul uses that word. Your body has to be under your control, and you need to know how to do that. Okay. Now, obviously, you would have no control over that apart from the Holy Spirit's residence in you. But that power inside of you, coupled with letting the word dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, becomes the impetus that you can begin to gain control over your own self. And as we talked about a number of other things earlier, as you structure your thought life and you keep away from the places where you're having trouble, those become the, the keys for you to have victory. And, and these are the things that Paul's getting across here to them as well. Okay? So you're not going to be captured by immorality when you, have, when you know how to master your own body and you have to get control of your own flesh. And Paul knew exactly what he was talking about. In Romans chapter 7, verse 22, Paul says this. This is his observation of his own life. He says, he says this, For I joyfully concur... Just go. Sorry about that. Nope. I messed it up. All right. I'll just read it to you. 
For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul looks at himself and he says, listen, in my mind, in the inside, the new me, I joyfully concur with the law of God. The part that's been redeemed, my new relationship with the Lord, resonates with what the Lord wants me to do. I get that. Paul says, I joyfully concur. But, he says, I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul says, another thing is going on, though. This body that's unredeemed has an appetite, and I see it desiring things that are not okay with me now that I'm a new person. Paul says, listen, I understand this. You know, if you look forward at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, just briefly, will you do that? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, another great illustration. We'll get back to our passage. Paul talks about it again, and, and again, he's talking about his own flesh. He's talking about the unredeemed part of him still waiting to be glorified. And as he refers to that, just like he was referring to it in Romans 7, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Don't you know that? Everybody runs, but only one person's going to get uh, the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath. See where I am? But we an imperishable, so they labor for something that isn't eternal. We labor for something that is eternal. Uh, verse 26, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. So I'm not just kind of jogging around, not doing anything, not training. I'm not boxing and just beating the air and just pretending I have an opponent. Verse 27, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul wants his body to be his slave, concurring with the law of God in the inner man, like he said in Romans 7, verse 22. Because even a preacher, as a preacher, he said he could be, uh, have the same problem. He could end up being disqualified. Sexual sin is a thing that can master someone. And Paul's warning the Corinthian church, listen, all things are forgivable, but some things take you captive. It can dominate the body. And particularly this thing of lust becomes a driving, compelling, dominating passion, and men are taken captive. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline, hupopiazo, present, active, and dis indicative. It literally means strike in the face. The statement comes really on the heels of the end of verse 26, I box in such a way as not beating the air. So Paul says, I don't beat the air, I strike myself in the face. Now, in boxing language, that's where you have the best chance of a knockout, that's where you have the best chance of a knockdown, and I don't think necessarily that Paul is actually physically hitting himself or physically telling you to box yourself in the face when you're having some trouble. Although I can imagine a punch, a firm punch in the nose from yourself as you're looking at something you shouldn't be looking at might be a careful reminder. And I'm not, I'm, I'm exaggerating and I'm not telling you to do that. I don't think that's Paul's emphasis, okay? Somebody else popping you in the face, so your, your accountability partner popping you in the face might be helpful. Okay? Listen, Paul's not actually saying, that's what I'm doing to myself. Here's the, here's the point. As it comes on the heels of my box in such a way as not beating the air. Okay? He's going after the places in his life where, as he takes them on, will do the most good. He's going to score the most points against this opponent, which happens to be this unredeemed flesh, which has appetites, and he doesn't want to fulfill them. That's the point, okay? Where can he score the most points against his opponent? The unredeemed flesh. And the idea is that if you're enslaved to this particular sin, you're going to have to fight for real. 
And I say this to men all the time as they come and say, listen, I'm having some trouble here. You're not alone, first of all. Number two, if you want to whip it, you're going to have to fight for real. And you're going to have to be careful of where you go, and you're going to have to be careful of what you're meditating on, and you're going to have to make sure that you see what the real enemy is and make sure that you're doing and dealing blows that are actually scoring points and making some difference. If you really want to get out of it, you can. Okay? But Paul's warning to them in Corinth is, listen, all things are forgivable, but some things take you captive. And then he gives some key ideas to help you be delivered from those very things. Okay? Sin robs, sin dominates, and he needs them to know this, and they're going to have to be very diligent about taking it on. Now, look at verse 13, if you would, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Principle number three. Third principle that's negative, and then we get into the five that are positive. And I'm not talking quickly enough or reading quickly enough or something because we're, time's getting away from us, so we'll do the best we can. Look at verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Principle number three. The believer's perception of the body is changed by physical sin or sexual sin. So first one is the believer's body is robbed. Second one, brought under the power, sexual sin. Third one, the believer's perception of the body is changed by sexual sin. Now, in general, that was the way sexual immorality was justified. It's, and that's what he's playing on, Okay. And we hear it still today. It's just like eating and drinking. It's just a biological issue. We still hear that. The Corinthians had that little saying, it's just like eating and drinking, just filling a need. In other words, you know, sex is for the body, the body for sex. That's the parallel Paul's making. Food for the stomach, stomach for food, sex for the body, body for sex, because that's his point. Okay? So eating and drinking for the sake of the stomach, Paul says, though, is going to be done away. That's what he says. Food's for the stomach, stomach for food, but God will do away with both of them. So Paul says, you know, your little, your little saying, you know, uh, sex is for the body, body for sex, uh, no, no. Eating and drinking for the sake of the stomach is going to be done away with. There's coming a day where you won't feel the need to sate your hunger by food. Now, you will have the marriage supper of the lamb. There's going to be some feasting, but you're not going to have that desire. Your stomach's not going to growl like it may be doing right now, and uh, you need to fill it up, okay? That's what Paul says. God is will do away with both of them. The little saying you have to justify your immorality, well, it doesn't work. It breaks down, okay? Stomach for food, food for the stomach, sex for the body, body for sex, no. That breaks down, Paul says. The perception you have of your body is wrong. The need for food is going to be done away with, but your body is going to be raised. So Paul says, yet the body is not for immorality. Your body isn't just a temporal commodity, you know. There's coming a time in this world where we're going to be raised. For some, it will happen at the rapture. Uh, for those who have already died, they'll come out of the ground first. But the reality of it is that when Paul wants to make sure they understand, believers are going to be in heaven with literal bodies, albeit a glorified body, but physical, recognizable body. So Paul says, look, the food that you need because you're hungry, and you know it because your stomach's growling, God's going to put it into all that. But the body, the new you, incorporated right now in unglorified flesh, that new you is someday going to be in that body made new. So Paul says, don't make the mistake of thinking, here it is, that the physical act of eating is the same as the physical act of immorality. Paul says, don't confuse those two. They're not the same. Big difference. And then Paul makes this statement, the first positive principle after three negative ones, the body's not for immorality. He says this, but the, but the Lord and the Lord is for the body. 
Your body was made for the Lord. Principle number four. And Paul just uses the same pattern of speech from the false statement to utter a true statement. You know, stomach for food, food for the stomach, body for sex, sex for the body. No, he says, no. The body is not for immorality, but the body is for the Lord. And Paul just wants them to understand this very important principle, one that is just obvious, the body was made for the Lord, and it's going to be eternal. And you can just start at the beginning, lots of places we can illustrate it. Genesis 1.27, and he created man in his own image, the image of uh, God, he created them, male and female, he created them, and Adam and Eve walked and talked with God, made for the Lord, your body was made for the Lord. Psalm 139, 13, one of my favorite passages, for you formed me in my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God, how vast is the sum of them. That is such a great passage that just describes, listen, you were made. You were made for the Lord. He delights in you. He formed you in, when you couldn't be seen. He's a, it's part of the whole thing. Made by the Lord. Made for the Lord. The Lord delights in his creation. Isaiah 43, 7. Just, just obvious stuff. Paul says, listen, your, your, little, your little phrase there doesn't work. Because the body wasn't made for immorality. The body was made for the Lord. And someday it's going to be there with him. Glorified state. Everyone who's called by my name, and he's talking about Israel here, but this is just a great marvelous verse. For all who've named the name of the Lord, he says, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, see, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. That's you, see. The body's not for sex and sex for the body, the stomach for food, food for the stomach. No, the body's not made for immorality, Paul says. The body's made for the Lord. Psalm 100, verse 1, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. You were made for, you were made for the Lord. Your body was made for the Lord. John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my, my disciples. Just as the Father hath loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. You were made for the Lord, and your body was made for the Lord, and all these deeds that you do bring joy and contentment and peace and, and uh, communion with the Lord. It's all just right there over and over again. You were made for God in the obedience of your flesh. You would bear much fruit and have the fullest of joy. That's what you were made for, not for immorality, Paul says. You were made for the Lord. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Sought out by God for the purpose of a relationship. In the midst of lostness, God seeks to restore, and he restores that we could again be displayed as Ephesians chapter 2, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Created for good works, which God prepared before, before we were what? Before we were restored, before we were redeemed, see, so that we could walk in them in his power. That's marvelous, isn't it? 
body wasn't, uh, stomach made for food, food for the stomach, God's going to do away with both of those. The body wasn't made for immorality. The body was made for the Lord. And God's not doing away with it. He's going to glorify it, and it's going to be there in his presence forever. Paul says, listen, you've got a, a distorted perspective of who you are in the body. Not only are you being robbed, not only are you being taken captive, you've just lost all perspective of who you are in the body. The body was made for the Lord, created for good works. So Paul's dealing with this issue. We're out of time, so we'll just close here. Paul's dealing with this issue of the church, of church health. Church health in singleness and in marriage. And so he has to deal with errors regarding impurity. See, And overall, the, all these things are going to affect the quality of anything that's going to come in chapter 7. Whether it's the gift of singleness and serving the Lord wholeheartedly with all your life. Or it's the gift of being married and serving together with that person your whole life. Immorality inside that life is going to be a problem. And Paul says, you've come out of that wicked culture, this island of, of, uh, of redeemed in the midst of wickedness. And he said, listen, this is all going to have to change. The way you think about this, the way you've allowed it back in your life, this has to be gone. Otherwise, you're messing the whole thing up. God's plan first. Okay, remember why you were created. And yes, you're forgiven of everything, but some things take a huge toll, and some things capture, and some things distort who you really are, and you forget what you were made to do. See? So he lays this foundation of principles before he begins to answer their questions about marriage and singleness and divorce. And they're some important principles, and they're very relevant for today. And Paul wants to get across to them to show why immorality has to be barred from the life of the believer. And they have to do it with the body. See, Understand this, Paul says, the believer's body is robbed by sexual sin. The believer's body is brought under the power of sexual sin. The believer's body is, the perception of the believer's body is changed by sexual sin, and the believer's body was made for the Lord. So start there, Paul says. This is where we're going to start and get this straight before we move into all these relationships that God has designed for us. All right? That closes our time out. Let's bow and be dismissed in a word of prayer, if you would, with me. Father, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for uh, the love that you've shown us through your word, that you desire for us to be healthy, that maybe it's a, from a preventative uh, place that uh, perhaps you're a young person and you, you haven't begun to deal with these things and this is where you can prevent having to deal with them and not find yourself falling afoul of the Lord's design for you and for your body and the use of it. Or perhaps uh, you're, you're more mature and you have found yourself struggling at times and, and this gives uh, us some very important principles and some facts to help us assimilate who we are and why it's important that we do what we do and then how to go about that by avoiding those places and not meditating on those things. And Lord, we just thank you for how just across the board you reach from one end of your word to the other and say the same thing and help us to be conformed to the image of your son. It's really what we desire to do. And so, Father, that is our prayer today. As we sit quietly, uh, perhaps, and, and we think about our own life, perhaps the things we struggle with this week or some things that we've had trouble with in the past or things that t tend to be in our mind even now, temptations that are coming along. And Lord, I pray that we'll not move in that pattern of temptation, which leads ultimately to destruction and death or for the roaring lion who roams around out there seeking to devour us in our sin. We really want to avoid all of that and, and the bad name that gives to our own testimony and to the church that you bought with your son's blood. And so, Lord, as we think about our church, we think about churches that read this, Lord, we just pray that we be brought in conformity wherever we may be. We know that all things can be forgiven. And if we've been taken captive, we know now the beginning steps of what to do about that. And if it's robbed us already, we know that walking in obedience to you can restore. And you can give back the years, even as you told your people, that the locust ate. 
it's amazing that that's how you are. You're at the beginning of it, you're at the end of it, and all the process in between. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we recognize that you can do that work in us, and we give you full reign. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the security of that salvation in our relationship with you. We rejoice in the fellowship today and the sweetness of that. For those who are guests here today, they were able to enjoy that fellowship that is really part of those who are redeemed, who are called by your name. And Father, I pray as we move into this evening where we will renew our study in Joshua with John, I pray, I pray that uh, you'll guide him as he speaks to us. You might be encouraged, understand uh, in the course of life uh, the ups and downs and, uh, and how they're connected directly to our obedience or disobedience of you. Just so consistent, Father, all the way through your word, pray that you'll give him understanding. For all that uh, holds uh, this week holds for us, pray first of all we'll be carrying out the Great Commission. Father, we'll be, about, we'll be believers who are about sharing the good news, that we won't uh, shy away from it, that we'll seek out opportunity and pray and ask each day that you might give us that opportunity, Father, and that you might take us back to your word again and again each day, that we may be able to uh, understand your holy standard, be encouraged by your promises, uh, held to account uh, by your Holy Spirit, working actively in our life, letting the word dwell in us richly with all wisdom, uh, that we may know how it may give grace to our speech and we may know how to answer all those who are on the outside. Lord, all these things we pray will be an active part of those who are fellowshipping here and your church at large, Father, that we might have a great testimony in a culture that is lost and that is drowning in a sea of wickedness. Thank you for uh, faithfulness in which you deal with us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Most of all, thank you for Jesus and it's in his name we pray and all God's people said.